Okay, um, <clears throat> we are continuing with our, uh, with our study of the book of Ephesians, and we are uh, in chapter 2. You can flip there right now if you want to. We've uh, made it to verse 4. Last week we, uh, uh, we looked at the first three verses of chapter 2, and... Uh, and then, uh, you know, and, and I was talking, when I was talking last week about that, I was saying it's imperative that we understand what Paul's saying in the first three uh, verses of chapter 2, or we, we, we won't understand, uh, you can put it this way, verses 1 through 3 are absolutely paramount for understanding verses 4 through 6. Specifically, verse 4, where he gets into the great love, this phrase, his great love, wherewith he loved us. Um, anyway, the first, three, the first three verses of this chapter are Paul's description of the condition of the Adamic man, the natural man. When I say the Adamic man, I mean the, the, uh, the, 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 the nature that was resident in your soul when you were born, the natural man, the, the offspring of Adam who, who uh, became a, a soulless sinner and reproduced after his own kind just like everything does, and, and filled the earth with that kind. Uh, so, the first three verses were, is where Paul kind of gives us the bad news about what we started as in the sight of God uh, by nature. But, as we said, he describes this, this uh, deplorable uh, state of the Adamic man only so that he can go, go on then to describe the great love with which He loved us. And that's, that's our verse for today, and I'm going to spend uh, more than one week doing my best to describe uh, the reality of that, that great love. But again, I just want to say this on purpose uh, repeatedly, that you, you will never comprehend the greatness of that love unless you first comprehend the greatness of the otherness of Christ. In other words, you'll never know the reality of God's love until you've had a confrontation with the Spirit of Truth regarding the reality of what you and I were first by nature, that we were children of wrath. As we, uh, as we mentioned last week, these first three uh, verses in Ephesians chapter 2, don't, they don't say that you were headed towards death. They say you were dead, spiritually dead. They don't say that... You, you had some struggles with trespass and sin. They said you were dead in trespass and sin. It doesn't say that you had some worldliness issues. It says you walked entirely according to the course of the world, the age, that age of the old, old creation. It doesn't say that you were tempted by Satan. It says that he was your prince and that in fact you gave him expression. You were the expression of the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. It doesn't say that you had some hang-ups with lust. It says you conducted yourself in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It doesn't say that you did some things deserving of wrath. It says that you were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. So here we have Paul taking great care to describe this dead and depraved condition of the Adamic man. 
And, and, and we need to see that first. I don't mean we just need to read that first. I don't mean we have to come to a theological agreement with that first. I mean we need to really see that with the eyes of the heart. I mean there has to be an inward confrontation with that being, by, by the Spirit of God, with that being what the problem is. As we're going to see, your understanding of His love corresponds directly with your comprehension of the problem that His love fixes. So we need to understand that we don't, we don't bring our best to God and ask Him to use it. We bring ourselves as a living sacrifice. In other words, we come bearing His death that we might live in and by His life. That is the Gospel. That is the message of the cross. And, and frankly, that goes right back to the tabernacle. And we won't get into that a whole lot this week at least, but, but you, you know, there's an order. There's an order to this thing. There's an order to comprehending the salvation of God. You can't know the good news, for instance, uh, in, in the tabernacle of what's behind, behind the veil unless as you enter the tabernacle, the first thing you face is the brazen altar. The first thing you face right there is death. There's an order. God made, God made you know, them take very specific animals of specific ages with specific perfections to that altar. Uh, for instance, a male lamb, you know, <clears throat> of one year old, without spot or without blemish. And not a single one of them were good enough to live. They were all only good enough to die. Everything to that altar, you know, yes, you can say it represented Christ, but it didn't just represent Christ. It, it represented what was being put to death through the death of Christ. It represented us in our trespass and sin. He didn't need to die apart from taking us upon Himself. So you can't just look at those lambs and bulls and pigeons and say, oh, all that stuff, that just represents Jesus. No, those different sacrifices were the animals that the people of Israel laid their hands upon and those animals died representing them in all of their trespass and sin, in all of their fallenness and deadness. This was God putting death to death, and that's what we talked about last week. Those animals were like how Christ in Himself bore the death of the Adamic man. He was the last Adam. Here we have God putting death to death in these types and shadows. And it was when these animals were brought to that altar in, in, in this type and shadow of God's righteous judgment, then, then, the only thing that ever went past that, that altar was the blood. And that, then, was how we were accepted in the high priest who goes beyond the veil. You never, you never read about any of those animals making it past the brazen altar. You never... You know, how many lambs uh, do you read about mentioned walking around by the incense altar? Do you ever read about a, a bull that accidentally knocked over the showbread? You know, why, why don't you read that? Well, because all flesh died at that altar. Only the blood went in. And maybe you can't see this morning, maybe it, it doesn't, hasn't really dawned on your heart how significant that is. But please see at least this, that unless we realize that the death that we are must face the death of that Lamb, then we will never truly comprehend the love with which He loved us. In other words, unless we understand that we have nothing to offer Him except the sweet aroma of our nothingness and the increase of Christ, 
so that Christ can be all in all, then we won't understand the nature and reality of this great love. Because His great love never one time let any of those animals live. And that's the kind of love the Adamic man wants. If you can hear what I'm saying. That's the kind of man, that love that, that the natural man wants. <clears throat> we want... We want God to look down on one of those fuzzy little lambs and say, oh, look at that one. Isn't he cute? Look at that little button nose, you know, on those puppy dogs. I'm going to let this one live. I'm going to let this one go, you know. Never once does that happen. That's not the love of God. The love of God has to do with putting away, destroying, removing what is contrary to Him so that He could fill you, your soul, with something which is really someone that is acceptable to Him. I'm not talking about the destruction of the soul. I'm talking about the destruction of the nature that fills the soul so that there can be a replacement, replacement of that which is acceptable in His sight. The destruction of the natural man and the filling of the soul with the very person of His Son. His love is far greater, if you can hear what I'm saying this morning, His love is far greater than giving you something or some status that makes you acceptable in His eyes. His love is actually giving you the very Son of His love as your life. Ephesians 1.6, remember we, we went through this verse, He made us accepted, how? In the Beloved. Colossians 1.13, He delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. If we can see what this means, then we can see that the, this is the greatest possible way that God could love a human being. Some people I, I, you know, hear what I, I preach and, and at first think, man, he's saying that God wants me to die. I thought God loved me. Guys, it's, it's because God wants to love you that He wants to crucify you with His Son. It's because God wants to lavish His love on you in the person of Jesus Christ, as we will go on to, go on to read in this chapter, that you must first be baptized into His death. It's because you are baptized into His death that you can walk in the newness of His life. That is the love of God. Can you hear that this morning? There's no possible way for God to love you more than to give you not just some justified, righteous status, but the very life of the justified Son who took upon Himself all trespass and sin. The one who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is so important. God didn't just give you righteousness. God gave you His Son, who is your righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Christ has been made unto you righteousness. Wisdom, sanctification, redemption. I call that love. God didn't just give you some eternal life. It's not a substance. It's a son. He gave you his son as your life. I call that love. God did not just give you a relationship with him. He gave you his son's relationship with him. 
I'd call that love. That is unreal. I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. That's what He brought you into. That's love. That's love. Love of God is not something that God gives you because of Christ. The love of God is Christ. The love of God is Christ. Try to hear that. The love of God is Christ. So Paul takes great care here in describing our Adamic condition because we have to come to know that it needed to be destroyed and not refined. It didn't need a nature enhancement. It's not like spiritual Botox or something. It needed a nature replacement. So anyway, let's read our verses for today. And I'm just going to back up and start with the beginning of the chapter because it leads us right into this. Ephesians 2.1 and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, and, and again, I mentioned this last week, but where it says, he, some, uh, some of your translations may have, he made alive, and you he made alive. That should be in italics. It's, uh, it's uh, not there in, that, in the Greek there. It's not in that verse. It comes into play here in, in verse 5, and it is very important, but it's out of place there, in my opinion. Well, it's out of place there in Paul's opinion, or he would have wrote it there. So, it was added by the translators, what I'm saying. So it just reads like this. And if you have the New American Standard, it reads like this uh, in the New American Standard. And you who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the prince who now work, or the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. And then he goes on to describe the love. But I'm just going to get into this concept of, 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 of love. I'm just going to introduce it a little bit this morning. It's my opinion that there is a, a great amount of misunderstanding in the, in the, in the body of Christ about, about the nature and the reality of the love of God. I think that when most people think about the love of God, they, 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 they naturally conjure up in their mind what they, what they uh, think they know or want to know love to be. And once again, you know, if you, <clears throat> apart from the Spirit of God revealing truth to us, we, we, create, we create God in our own image. There's an uh, atheist philosopher who wrote the book, and it, this, this, this anti-Christian book, and in the beginning, the first three were, or the first sentences, in the beginning, man created God in his own image. Well, that guy's a moron, but the, 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 there is truth to, uh, to what he says apart from God revealing himself. We will create God in our own image or in the image of we, whatever we want Him to be apart from the Spirit of Truth working in our hearts. So, anyway, most people think of the, uh, the love of God and, and we, we do. We begin to create our understanding of the love of God according to our own image. Love is generally understood to be an emotional fondness or, or, or passion that God has for people. It's, it's a feeling, it's a way that God feels, and it's generally limited to that. And then if you ask a person, you know, how do you know that God loves you? You know, most people will say, uh, often they'll point to something in the natural creation, you know, and they'll say, 
this is the proof of God's love. Someone will point to the sunshine and say, look how He loves me. Look at this beautiful sunshine that He provides for us. Or, or you know, another will say, oh, it's because He provides food on my table every night. Or another will say, it's because I'm, you know, I'm 73 years old and, 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 and uh, I'm still healthy as a horse. Or, you know, uh, uh, okay, you know, that, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not going to argue that those things are good and that each one of them ultimately has their source in God and, and the goodness of His creation. But let, me, let me just ask you a question here. What, what, about, what about the person born blind from his mother's womb that has never seen the sun? Does God not love him? Worse than that, what about the guy that's been locked up for 40 years in a dungeon for something he didn't even do and never will see the sun? God not love him? What about a starving North Korean who doesn't have food on his plate every night or every week for that matter? Is that, is that the measure of God's love for that unlucky soul? You know? What about a person who, who, who never sees 73 but dies slowly of cancer at 25 and leaves four kids? Where's the love of God in that? I'm not trying to be melodramatic or confusing, and nor am I denying that there is something of God's kindness and provision and care seen in every ray of sun and every bite of food that, that is for our bodies. I am just trying to define His great love in and as the person of Jesus Christ. The scriptures speak of the love of God in Christ. And I'm just hoping to expand our view of that love this morning beyond maybe what we have seen. The love of God is not conditional. You can't measure it or prove it necessarily by experiences in the natural realm. That's not the measure of it. That's not the manifestation or proof of it. It is a reflection, perhaps, of it. There are good things in this realm. There are horrible things in this realm. The love of God, however, is eternal and unconditional and is proven in and as the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'll go on to describe exactly what I mean by that. But before I do, I want to just say something to you that I said a thousand times here. That's probably not an exaggeration. Unless we are willing in our hearts before the Lord to trade in our imagination. We will never share His view of truth. We've all imagined the love of God. We've all, in one way or another, we've all conjured up thoughts and ideas as to its nature and character and reality. And that's not necessarily bad. It's just not the mind of Christ. And we have to face that. And, and wherever we hold on to our thoughts, that is where He is, he is not free to show us His. That's true about everything, and that's the most important thing I know. That's why I say it thousands of times. Wherever you hold on to your thoughts, notions, understanding, comprehension of spiritual reality, that is a place where Jesus would say to you, My word has no place in you. I'd like to talk to you plainly about the love of God, but I'd also like us just to put our guard down, if we could, around our, our pet, pet doctrine so that the Spirit of God has some room in our hearts to show us a greater view of love. 
a greater view of, of, of the person who, in fact, is the love of God. His view is always far greater than our view if only we'll trust Him to bring us to that view. The love of God has to do with putting death to death and giving you the person of life to fill your soul. I was meeting with someone this week while we were drinking some coffee at a coffee shop and he was telling me that he was uh, listening to what we were talking about last week. And uh, it was, I got goosebumps just listening to him because he was talking about how as, as, as I was uh, describing uh, putting death to death and how we are you know, dead in trespasses and sin and how the cross actually is an, an end. How, you know, how we were born in that, this hopeless state and yet that death didn't have, a re- didn't have hope to it until that death was put into the death of Christ and how Christ put death to death so that we could walk in the newness of life. And this person was kind of recounting some of the things he, he was seeing and then all of a sudden it dawned on him that right there, he said, right there I saw it. I said, oh, what did you see? Because I saw the love of God. That is the love of God. And that's when I got the, you know, I wanted to do a, a backflip. And if we weren't in Caribou Coffee House, I would have done a backflip. Or at least tried one. And that is exactly right. The love of God is, it's not just some nebulous feeling of goodwill. It's not just some ill-defined emotion or some, some passionate sentiment. It is a person who is given to you as death and who in His resurrection can be your life forever with Him. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is a person who becomes unto you a resurrection, a life, righteousness, freedom, truth, wisdom, redemption, unity, peace, forgiveness, reconciliation. It's so much bigger than just something he feels. It's a son that he gives. That's the love of God. Not just things that he gives you because he feels a certain way about you. They are the things He has given you in and as the person of Jesus Christ. That's the love of God. We need to realize that the love of God is not anything other than the person of Jesus Christ given to the human soul. Think about it with me. How could God possibly love you more than that? more than to give you Christ. And I'm not saying that God loved you and therefore He gave you Christ. I'm saying that the love of God is Christ being given to you. Can you hear what I'm saying there? There's a difference. And it's a distinction that the New Testament bears out repeatedly, starting with everyone's, everyone's favorite verse. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish and have, but have everlasting life. Well, that, you know, that, that first little phrase there, for God so loved the world, that, that, that Greek word so is not, does not, is not a word that measures quantity. It is a word that defines quality. It, in fact, is, uh, you know, not saying God so much loved the world. It's saying God in this manner loved the world. You can look it up. The word so there is the Greek word... Uh, Huto, uh, and it means in this manner, thusly, in this way, of this fashion. What's my point? My point is that the love of God wasn't just the emotion that led God to give His Son, 
the love of God was the giving of His Son. The giving of a Son for the entire world that whosoever, whosoever wanted to, could face an end in that Son and find a beginning in that Son. So when you go back and read John 16, for God in this manner loved the world that He gave His Son. That's very, very significant. It says a very similar thing in 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Same thing. Same reality. Stated slightly differently. But just like, just like uh, the person said in the coffee shop, God loved the world by offering us a baptism into death, a burial with Him, that we might have Him as our resurrection in our life. That we could walk in the newness of life. The love of God is a person poured out into the heart, as it says in Romans poured out into the heart by the Spirit that He has given us unto the displacement of what was already there by nature. Now, I know that, that that confuses before it brings light. Please, I, I, I know that. I understand that. Truth always does that. God never shows up to add on to what you already know. He shows up to replace what you think you know with the true knowledge of Him that is given to you by Him. Sometimes I say it like this, God never appears without His flint knife in His hand. Ready to circumcise more of the strongholds of our mind and the things, the lofty thoughts that have raised up against the true knowledge of Him. So I know that this, this, what I'm saying here, it confuses before it calms. It disrupts before it settles. It's not uncommon. It, in fact, it may even be necessary for people to go through a season where they are questioning what they have thought about the love of God. I had to walk through that. I think it's healthy. I think it's normal. I remember when the Lord began to deal with my heart about how He desires an increase of Christ in my soul. Not a quantitative increase. Not like I got His foot when I was born again, but I'm looking for His arm or something like that. I'm talking about the increase manifestation. Christ formed in me, Galatians 4.19. I remember how He started to show me that in my flesh dwells no good thing and, and, and face the reality that I had been crucified with Christ and it was no longer I that lived, but Christ that lived in me. I was baptized into His death. I was circumcised with the circumcision without hands, the putting off of the body of sin by the circumcision of Christ. And all these verses, they started, they started hitting me over and over again. And it raised all sorts of questions in my heart. But see, the questions wouldn't have risen in my heart if it wasn't the Spirit of God first dealing with me about truth. The questions came out of the truth. And I remember asking the question, God, do you really love me or you just want to... You just want to use me to get more of Jesus. Do you really just love Jesus? Am I just a means to an end for you? Am I just a way for you to get an increased expression of your son? Do you even care about me? Do you even love me? I thought you loved me. I thought you loved me just the way I was. I thought you created me just the way you wanted me. All these questions started rising up in my head. And I'm telling you, that's important. The questions wouldn't be there if the Spirit of God wasn't working in your soul. It's not a sign of, of something bad happening. It's a sign of something good happening. Most people don't even care. They just say, well, God loves me the way I am. Now, please, listen to me really carefully right now. God does love you. 
exceedingly abundantly more than you and I could ever ask or think or imagine. There is, as our verse says here, a great love wherewith He loved us. It is far greater than the human mind could ever think or conjure up. In fact, the love of God for you is so great, He must show it to you with His comprehension being revealed in your heart. It cannot be touched by the carnal mind. 1 Corinthians 2.12 The natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to Him. Romans 8.6 The natural, the mind of the flesh is death. Well, something must be shown to you. And yet, first, there must be a willingness of the heart to exchange the natural-minded, man-made image of His love for the truth of His love as it is in Christ. Strange as it might sound, I really do think it is a healthy sign of the Spirit working in a heart when a person starts to ask some of those questions. Those questions, again, would not even arise in your heart if you hadn't allowed the Spirit of God some room to question and confront some of our presuppositions and definitions. So as painful as it might be to walk through, and it was for me, some of those questions and confusion about the love of God, it is a sign, in my opinion, of growth. Do you know what, in my opinion, is not a sign of growth? Do you know what, in my opinion, is a sign of what I would call maybe spiritual complacency? is when a person is content to believe and insist upon his or her own version of spiritual reality without constantly falling on their face and saying, God, do I even understand anything of this at all? That's a bad sign to me. So anyway, questions arise, not just about the love of God, but about everything. And most often, the first, we, we, you know, first, unfortunately, we have already built our theologies and doctrines and dogmas, and then the Lord comes, He comes with His flint knife. He comes to replace, replace our, our strongholds, our imaginations with Himself. He shows up with His sword, like He did with David that one time. And he says to you something like, do you want a doctrine of love or do you want to be rooted and grounded in the person of love? Do you want to believe that perfect love casts out fear? Or do you want the person of perfect love to be the end of your fear? You know, he shows up like that. I want to say this to you. I've said this in some of the small groups, but I don't know if I've ever said it here, that many of our questions and our confusion will never even be answered by God because it doesn't even make sense. Our questions are so often born out of darkness that they are not answered by the light. They disappear in the light. If your question itself is darkness, it doesn't even warrant an answer. It just fails to exist in the light of His face, in the light of His truth. 
It's like a person going into a perfectly dark room, a perfectly dark and perfectly empty room, and demanding that God tell them the color of the couch in the room. God, tell me what color my couch is. God, I'm going to pray and fast and seek you until you tell me what color my couch is. God, I'm not giving up. I'm laying hold of the hem of your garment. I'm going to lay hold of you until you tell me what color the couch is. I'm not giving up, Lord. It's been six years. Prayer, fasting, weeping. I've prayed. I've taught my kids about the couch. Now show me the color of the couch. I'm waiting. Teach me. Show me. You know? I'm not giving up, God. And finally, the light goes on in the room and reveals that obviously there's no couch at all. And I'll tell you what, light didn't answer your question. Light removed your question. Light showed your question to be born out of darkness. Light showed your question not even to make any sense whatsoever. It didn't have an answer. There was no way to answer it. It had to be destroyed by the presence of light. The presence of understanding. I'm going to tell you that 93% of my questions... So far, in my seeing of the Lord, haven't even deserved an answer. They've been dissolved in the presence of light. We often demand that God answer our questions and confusion about things that don't even exist in His view. We have these doctrines and dogmas. We're certain that God wants to defend and we pray. We pray that He would teach us more about them and show, show them to our friends and neighbors and kids. And all God is really trying to do is shine the light of the knowledge of the, of, of the glory of God in your heart to give, you, to give you spiritual understanding, which is not your understanding of spiritual things, but the Spirit's understanding of all things. And sometimes that does answer your question, but sometimes that's going to dissolve your question. And more often, like I said, I have found that my questions dissolve in His appearing because they were the creation of darkness. It's kind of like uh, Abraham and Ishmael, you know? God shows up to Abraham and says, you're going to have a son. Abraham says, I think I can do that. He has a son. Many years later, God comes back and says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham's thinking, yeah, I thought I already did that. God says, no. As for that, that son that you made, he will have no inheritance with the son that I am bringing forth. And then he shows up again when Isaac is born. And God says, take your son, Isaac, your one and only son. Ishmael never entered God's view, even though Abraham pleaded with God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you and have the inheritance. So much of our couches and in the empty room are things that we demand to be right and real because we will not let Him show us the truth. I can tell you something very real and and personal about me. All of my questions about the love of God for me, the love of God for the world, the love of God for 
for the sinner and for the saved, all of those questions and confusions that I've had about the love of God, they were things, honestly, and I'm being serious here now, I'm not just trying to be melodramatic, they were things where I was demanding to know the color of a couch that doesn't exist. And I am not saying that God's love doesn't exist. I'm just saying that my understanding of it was so wrong, so man-made. I had created a God in my own image. And the reality was so much better, but I had to be willing to trade in the illusion before I could see the substance. His love is so far greater than my imagination could ever envision. It's just that this love was not there for me to define but what I thought by, by what I thought I wanted or needed or read about. His love was predestined, prepackaged, and given in and as the person of Jesus Christ and my and my measure of truly knowing the love of God corresponded directly to the measure that the person of Jesus Christ had been revealed in my soul. I hope you can hear what I'm saying. I am in no way saying the love of God isn't real. I couldn't be saying anything further from that. I'm simply saying that if I demand it to be a couch in an empty room because that's what I want, that's what I heard, that's according to my felt need, then I'll never really let him show me what it is, who it is really, and how it is infinitely more real and great than my carnal dream. I mentioned this once before, but we all are familiar with this verse, God is love, right? It says that in 1 John. God is love. says it twice. It's a verse that even non-Christians like to quote for various reasons, you know, like anti-war statements and all that kind of stuff. But everyone knows the verse, you know, God is love. But the problem with that verse is that we all approach that verse thinking that we know what love is and then we define God according to our definition of love. In other words, we say, well, I already know what love is, so if, so if God is love, then God must be like this and think this way and feel this way and do this and feel that. And Rather than, than allowing Him to be the defining of love, we define Him by our definition of love. You can hear what I'm saying there. It's kind of like... Uh, this, this is... This is uh, one of the examples of faulty thinking that's often used in logic classes, if you ever take a logic class, uh, I heard this in college, if God is love and love is blind and Ray Charles is blind, then Ray Charles must be God. (laughs) Now, that's obviously ridiculous, but it's along those same lines that we define God. We do our own little A. If A is B and B is C, then A must be C, you know, equal to C. And, and, and we, we define Him, we understand Him according to what we started with. And so anyway, getting back to our verses for today, which don't have to do with Ray Charles, uh, the reason that Paul deals with this great love, His great love, I love that, love that phrase, His great love, in verse 4 here, is because our understanding of His love is directly proportional to our understanding of our need. I'll try to explain what I mean, and then, and then we'll just end for this week and we'll get more into uh, the nature and reality of that love next week, but let me say this again. Your understanding of God's love is directly proportional to your understanding of your need. In other words... 
If you understand yourself to be a person who struggles with sin, then, you, then, then the love of God for you is going to be forgiveness for some sins. But if you understand yourself to be what is described in verses 1 through 3, then the love of God is going to take on a very different reality for you. See, if you know yourself to be dead in trespasses and sin, living in a dead realm under the power of the enemy, giving his kingdom expression, conducting yourself according to the lusts of the flesh and in all things seeking to fulfill the lusts of the flesh and of the carnal mind, and even by nature a child of wrath, well, then the love of God has got to be God's grand solution to all of that. It has to be both the destruction and removal of that and the replacement of it with something that is life rather than death, righteousness rather than sin, the power of an indestructible life rather than the prince of the power of the air, the fruit of the Spirit rather than the lust of the flesh, partaking of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.3, rather than by nature children of wrath. See, it's much bigger, but it depends on your understanding of your need. So I say your comprehension of His great love begins with a greater comprehension of your natural condition. You cannot comprehend the solution until you have shared His view of the problem. You cannot see the reconciliation until you have shared His view of the enmity, the enmity that exists. You'll never understand the nature of His love until you see the nature that has to be put away. And that's exactly why Paul introduces this great love by first describing the condition of the Adamic man. The condition of the Adamic man. So love then becomes not just something God feels. It's so much bigger than that but something God gives, something God gives as the only remedy to this dreadful and hostile situation. And the love then that He gives cannot be a what. It has to be a who. If it were a what, then it would be something that could fix you and that's impossible. Just look at these first three verses. But if God's love is a who, then it is someone who can live in you and be made unto you salvation and be made unto you righteousness and be made unto you redemption and be made unto you sanctification. Christ then in you can be these things. Romans 8, the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us as we no longer walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, the One who lives in us. This One who is the love of God. Romans 5 verse 9, or maybe it's 9 verse 5, one of the two. The love of God has been poured out in your heart by the Spirit He has given you. Hallelujah. It's not a what, it's a who. The One who is your life. Not I, but Christ who lives in you. We'll stop, we'll stop there for this week and we'll pick up more uh, on that next time. So let's just stand and we'll, we'll pray.